it's the weaponization of institutions of government against the will of the people. Because fundamentally what they're trying to do is criminalize dissent and neutralize their political opposition. And when you've got all these quote unquote democracy respecters saying that we need to deal with disinformation because it's dangerous to democracy, what they're really saying is they want to be able to control political outcomes to a point where there is never a mystery about what what voters will do because they have defined the universe of, of outcomes that they will allow voters to compel. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have another fantastic episode for you guys. As always, uh, today we had on a good friend of the show, a friend of our organization, a, a podcaster in her own right. May God bless her soul, uh, Paige Willie. But before we get to that, as always, make sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the entire backlog of this podcast, all 60-something episodes getting up on 70 by the way stay tuned we have fantastic guests i think for 70 and 75 and 80 which we'll get to by the end of the year i think mm-hmm. yeah um we are we are uh gonna gonna use the fancy round numbers as an excuse to have some some really baller people on the most unreasonably well-guested podcast in dc um, 75 is not a round number but nice try Yes, it is. I don't. It's nonsense. What? I, yes, it is. I, I stand by this. Um, fight me. Um, and so uh, go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find information about that events that we're hosting. You can find the books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos and short pieces that we're aggregating in Amcanon and just in general, keep up with everything that we're doing. Sign up for the mailing list. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, this week we had on Paige Willie, uh, who is absolutely fantastic. She's a podcast host, political commentator, and former special assistant to the president for political affairs. That is President Donald John Trump. Uh, she hosts the podcast, This Is Your Country, and serves as director at American Firebrand PAC. Uh, she is also the director of strategic communications at New Founding, a venture organization founded to revitalize America, specifically to build a digital commonwealth that actually serves the interests of Red America. So if you, uh, don't know how to, uh, you know, buy from people who think like you or at the very least don't hate everything you care about and believe. New Founding is the website for you. Highly recommend checking it out. Sign up for their Align newsletter. Um, but we had a fantastic conversation about Paige, about her time in the White House, her crusade against globalism. She lectured for our fellows later um, uh, today about um, how to be an anti-globalist. Um, she's just um, delightful. And we think that you guys are going to really enjoy it. What do you think about that, Nick? Yeah, it was... We talked a lot about the G word, uh, globalism, <laughs> which I understand can be taboo for some people. Uh, not the n- listeners of this show. Not the listeners of this show, though, um, yeah. unless you're a fake news journalist hunting this for clips to post on Twitter. But um, you know who you are. Yes, you do know who you are. <laughs> We're watching you. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, we had a really great wide ranging conversation. Um, I love that Paige is willing to uh, name names and call out people who uh, did not serve the last administration well. Um, it was just, yeah, really, really exciting to, to think about the future opportunities uh, for future conservative administrations and to talk about some of the terrible people that ruined the last one. That's right. Um, so we'll go now to Paige Willie. 
Howdy, Paige. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to tape with you. I'm a listener of your show, so uh, this is a podcast on podcast violence episode. So it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be great. Um, the first time we did that was literally the very first episode, and we were terrible at it. Hopefully, we're better at it now. But um, would love to uh, have the guests here your background, how you got here, um, because I think it's an interesting one. It's one that potentially a lot of our listeners may end up taking one day. Tell us a story. Yes. So when I was an undergrad at Swarthmore College, I was majoring in political science, and there was obviously a strong leftward tilt of the student body there, of the folks in my classes, and also of the professors. And I was looking for ways to become more engaged with conservative ideas and conservative policy. And I became connected to the American Enterprise Institute, and they were running a student academic outreach program where they would give you resources to bring conservative speakers to campus. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, what type of speaker would want to come to this small liberal arts campus where there's they're going to encounter hostility? This was right around the time of the, this is maybe just prior to the like Charles Murray protests at Middlebury where like the professor was assaulted. And like that was the climate that, that was starting to heat up on mm-hmm. campuses. And so I was thinking like, I need to find someone who will be sympathetic to this situation and won't be, you know, repelled by the thought of coming to our campus and it will be a successful event. So I was looking on the AEI website, found one of their economists named Kevin Hassett, and he had actually gone to Swarthmore. So I thought, oh, thank goodness, like he'll get the whole Swarthmore thing. I set up an event for him to debate his old economics professor, who is a rather far left type of guy, and advertised it, got it all organized, you know, start to finish, made sure it was all very neatly lined up and orchestrated. And um, Kevin thought it went really well. It did go really well, but he went back to AEI and was like, you have to hire this girl. She thought of everything. She organized it so successfully, you know, like you need a detail oriented person like this. So AEI um, eventually um, reached out. I went through the interview process, got a job offer to work in the education policy studies uh, department there. It's a conservative think tank ostensibly, right? Mm -hmm. But you've got a huge number of people there who were hostile to the Trump agenda, who were hostile to candidate Trump when he was running. Um, This was 2016 when I graduated from school. And so I was one of the few people there who voted for President Trump who wanted him to win, who thought he would win, and so on and so forth. And so um, I had become connected with Kevin, who was still there, you know, the the, econom- the economist who I had invited to speak at Swarthmore. And he just remembered that I was a very, you know, a vociferous advocate of President Trump. And so when President Trump won, and there were people at AEI crying at their desks and lamenting <laughs> the loss of the, um, the liberal world order, um, Kevin was tapped to be President Trump's economic advisor, which is a Senate confirmed position. And Kevin said, would you like to come to the White House with me? And I was like, oh, my goodness, like, how do you even know? Like, like how, what would qualify me for that? And he said, well, when you organized that event at Swarthmore a couple of years ago, like you did such an excellent job that it makes me think that you could come run my office at at CEA. Hmm. So um the so Kevin CEA being the Council of Economic Council Advisor. of Economic Advisors, which is the part of the White House that advises the president on economic data, economic analysis, all of the official government data that's you know GDP, wages, energy prices, inflation, you name it, that is flowing through CEA. It's staffed by professional economists and research assistants. Um, and we and we were charged with basically preparing a huge volume of memos and studies, white papers, presentations to keep the president apprised of what was happening in the economy. And that was a really special position to be in at the time. 
Um, because, because line was going up. Because lines are going up. That's right. You, we, that was our specialty, sort of like identifying the trend lines that either started because investors and other stakeholders were looking toward sort of better economic trends starting when he was elected. Mm-hmm. So you could see a lot of trend lines actually, you know, like leading indicators like look, going up starting then. But then you would also see them like when his policies were taking effect. So anyway, President Trump, I think, as a lot of people know, is obsessed with the economy. Like, Mm -hmm. he is obsessed with the economy. He's read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post. He's read these newspapers every single day since he was, like, a young adult, right? Because he was running a business. He really, really cares about it. He knows way more about monetary policy than someone like Jerome Powell, who, like, cannot, you know, like, (laughs) see straight even. So that was a, a source of frustration in the administration. But the point is, it was really exciting to work in the Council of Economic Advisors for a president who knows so much about the economy and took it so seriously. He really looked forward to a lot of briefings about how different types of workers were doing, workers of all backgrounds and classes, you know, workers with no high, with no high school diploma, workers with no college degree, um, workers who were struggling to get back into the labor force after a long time, you know, like they had just begun to look for jobs as the labor market was tightening, wages were going up. So he was intimately familiar with all of those elements. And I think that one thing people don't understand is that a lot of other presidents, they really don't know very much about the economy. They don't have very much quantitative experience at all. They never run a business. They don't pay attention to these trends. They don't know what to look for. And so they end up being sort of taken advantage of by um, by advisors with projects and motivations that are they may be like they may be tethered to special interests desires. They may be tethered to certain ideological projects that an advisor may have. But President Trump is intimately familiar with these sort of quantitative measures of how the economy was doing. And that makes it much harder for someone to pull the wool over your eyes when you know a lot about that type of background. So um, that was my first position in the White House, Associate Chief of Staff at the CEA. And then about um, halfway through the admin, um, they... Through lots of conversations and exposure to other folks in the White House, they were like, wow, you really have a a solid sense of who voted for the president and what these people of different backgrounds and people of different areas of the country um, value about him and and are looking for us to deliver on. So I was promoted to be a special assistant to the president for political affairs in the Office of Political Affairs. And that is the part of the White House that advises the president on a lot of different things, sort of especially as presidents are thinking about... um, orienting to more of a campaign focus if they're running for re-election or if they're engaging with a lot of outside stakeholders. They're thinking about how their policies are playing in different parts of the country. So that was the perfect intersection for me between the sort of uh, the understanding the economic data and cross comparing it with political trends, political data, demographic trends, understanding different parts of the country changing and and their values and their policy interests. Mm -hmm. So um, in that role, I was working a great deal with the speechwriting office, the communications office, and in the policy development process to sort of say, are, are we on track with these things that we promised the country and these different groups of voters? Mm-hmm. And obviously, there was the po- point in the administration where both at CEA and an Office of Political Affairs, things were fairly stable, fairly normal, and then all hell broke loose when COVID started. Walk us through what it was like to be in the White House when all of that began. What was your role in that process and what did you see? Yes. So when COVID descended upon the country, my first, the first 
moment of concern for me was when it was being sort of coordinated through the Domestic Policy Council, and we were getting these very ad hoc, bureaucratic, frivolous updates from the public health bureaucracy. So kind of unhelpful statistics, like very general statistics, X number of cases have been reported, X number of whatever has been reported, and very little helpful information. So that was my very first impression was, you know, I'm, I'm not in health policy, I'm not responsible for coordinating this, but my instinct was just sort of this information doesn't really seem to be very incisive at all. Like if you're if, if this is going to be a we had no idea what scale this would, you know, at, at what scale this would affect the country. But even so, if you're just, uh, you know, trying to gather enough information to brief the president or gather enough information to develop a, a theory about how things are going to go about whatever current thing it is. <laughs> That struck me as really unhelpful information. So I thought just that that was really odd that the public health bureaucracy was so unhelpful at first. And then um, as things started to gather steam and there were some missteps about, you know, how much will this affect the economy and, and so on and so forth. I actually think President Trump had a really good instinct, which is, first of all, when you have these public health advisors telling you that one specific solution that is so drastic as lockdowns and other things, he was very, very skeptical of that. And that was a good instinct because he was saying, you know, you, your background is in only one thing. So of course your preferred solution is going to favor your expertise. It's going to favor your, you know, putting you at the center of it. And that is just the way bureaucracies work. That's the way institutions work is that they want, um, to organize events in a way that puts them at the center of it, increases their budget, increases their, you know, prestige for their input. And he was trying to emphasize to them, like, look, I have a lot of factors to balance. I have to balance people's, you know, mental health if they're trapped in their apartments all day, uh, people's outcomes if they're uh, drawn to drinking and drugs and, and other destructive activity if they're out of work. I have to balance these things. And it was impossible to get through to Tony Fauci and Deborah Burks that there were other factors that needed to be balanced. So that to me was the fundamental mistake there was that it was so hard to break through the media management of the public discourse with COVID. And Deborah Burks and Tony Fauci were so enmeshed with the media at that point that they were really calling the shots and controlling the narrative. It was not helped also by the fact that I think our communication staff was doing a very poor job of pushing back against the narrative um, without naming names. A particular communications director at the time was especially defective and incompetent at managing the narrative, at helping the public understand this information that needed to be balanced. And so as a result, you just had President Trump out there um, as a lone voice saying we need to be balancing all these factors and with so little support from his staff. That to me, it was shocking. And again, I was a young staffer, right? I, I, something it's these things where it's like instinctual, you know, something is deeply wrong. You know that something is is being misrepresented to the public by the press. And it's very, very hard to claw that narrative back, especially when there are so many unknowns, because it really we did take it seriously. Of course, we took it seriously. It was killing people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one element of this that gets lost is that Early on in, in February and March, President Trump was having meetings with 
pharma executives saying, please invest, you know, research and development in cures to this, you know, remdesivir and other cures. And Nancy Pelosi was still telling people to dance around in Chinatown. So, <laughs> like, and, and the fact that like our communication staff couldn't be bothered, you know, in the in the subsequent months to say, actually, if you look back at the timeline, you'll see exactly when President Trump did all of these things to mm-hmm. take this seriously and to act on it and to find a solution, not just prolonged house de- arrest for the citizens. Uh, they just couldn't manage it. So to me, that just speaks to how, A, how hostile the press is, how seriously you have to take that they want you to fail. Number two is that you have to have talented people who are up to the job of pushing back against a a force so destructive. And then finally, I mean, you have to have confidence in yourself. And I think that there are a lot of White House staffers who knew something was wrong and they did not develop the confidence and sense of self to say, actually, Tony Fauci is a political actor and he's doing something wrong. And so at a, at a micro level, when people like Fauci and Burks would walk into the room, did you get the sense that most of the White House staff, they would just get rolled by these people? They weren't they weren't up to the task of responding to them. And the other element to this is I remember a lot of very, very uh, poorly aged conservative pundits at the time were like, yeah, yeah, Fauci's bad with Burke. She's the reasonable one. <laughs> there was a lot of that going on as well. I may have even been susceptible to it just because it didn't mm-hmm. feel like the messaging coming out uh, was had, super clear. She had, she had such great scars. Yeah, exactly. Voice <laughs> so right, yeah. exactly. um, of reason. Yeah. So what was the relationship like at a micro level? Are there any stories that particularly stick out in your mind of of how White House staff, even in the last year where there were better White House staff, how they ended up dealing with these bureaucrats. Yes, I don't. Largely, I would not say that the White House staff got rolled by Fauci and Burks. I would say that there that a lot of people were skeptical of their approach. But when you're not, we were playing on uneven turf, right? And I'll just give you an example. President Trump knows a huge amount about trade and economics, as I said. So it was very easy for him to push past various advisors who wanted to get their way on tariffs and trade and and manufacturing and so on, uh, because he knew exactly what turf he was playing on. Um, With the pandemic, we wanted to defer in some cases to the, the knowledge of people who are supposed to be you know, you're the head of a, of a, you know, the public health bureaucracy, Tony Fauci, you've been the expert for half a de- half a century. And unfortunately, I think that people in those positions abused their positions. So we were not incorrect to lean on them for expertise. They were doing something deceitful by recommending policy prescriptions that were going to harm the public and refusing to adapt to new knowledge. So... Um, that that was one issue. Um, number two, specific instances. Well, I remember my first day um, in a t- in a COVID task force meeting. Deborah Burks had printed uh, had, had assembled this slideshow with like 120 slides, right? Printed out in like tiny font, impossible to read. Um, and some of them were in a foreign language because it was it, she was presenting data on like how many cases had shown up in Italy and how many cases had shown up in you know, France or China or whatever. And I was, you know, flipping through this enormous briefing packet that she had. This was her briefing packet for the vice president of the United States who was charged with solving the coronavirus problem. And I kid you not, you could not have come up with an example straight out of 
the sort of what is that thing that the like communist guide for subverting like corporations <laughs> or whatever, you know, like tons of bureaucratic material. None of it is helpful. If you sifted through all that data, it would take you a day and it was meaningless. Right. Because yeah. like, why does the vice president need to start his covid task force meeting by looking at a slide with how many coronavirus cases are in Italy? And then another person who was involved, who was supposed to be managing this type of stuff, was a woman named Olivia Troy, who since came out, like she resigned, claimed that she's like a, a never Trumper and was going to work to not get President Trump elected. She was, you know, collaborating with the Lincoln Project and all this type of stuff. So that's the type of subversive that we were dealing with, like someone who literally came out as hating the president, and wanting to get him not reelected. I feel like I could have done a better job. Just typed out anyone on one could have <laughs> said, hey. It's bad. Yes. It was a, well, it was. A, it and so it was astonishing to me. And again, you're adapting, right? Like you hindsight is 2020, of course, like we can all look back and see which what mistakes were made and how things could have been done differently. But in the moment, if your instincts don't tell you why on earth is this woman who's supposed to be the expert giving the vice president slides in a foreign language about cases in a foreign country? It it was just so subversive. It was it's almost impossible to describe. Well, I think you're hitting on a really interesting point here. Uh, we you know we've heard so much such a tired phrase over the last two two and a half years. Trust the experts. Mm -hmm. uh, trust the experts on on COVID. Trust the experts on you know trans whatever. Trust the experts on Ukraine. I mean, we hear so much of oh the experts are in charge. They're mm -hmm. at the helm. They mm -hmm. know what they're doing. Uh, as we steadily descend into mm -hmm. into decline that's right where have the experts gone wrong <laughs> uh you know we we did used to have an expert class in this country that was you know capable of uh you know leading our country in the right direction and it seems like we've lost that how do we recover mm. a couple of things number one there's nothing inherently wrong with experts it's that when they are deeply partisan actors who are being uh, portrayed to the public as neutral arbiters of truth and of, of the direction the country should be going in, that's when you've got something dangerous going on because President Trump was elected to lead the country. Tony Fauci and Deborah Birx were not. And his mandate was to balance these different factors. And when he attempted to do so, he was they would leak and they would lie and they would go to the media to plead their case and they would truly tell lies to the public about why the president wasn't taking it seriously. And there were specific times where, you know, I, we were specifically working on the effect of the pandemic on the economy. And we went directly to Dr. Burks and said, um, what are the criteria that you will accept to join us in a push to remove lockdowns and begin reopening the country? What are the criteria you will accept? And she would not even, she would barely even engage with that question. And it was almost as if um, Fauci or someone else had instructed, if someone asks you when this ends, it doesn't end. You do not be helpful, stonewall. It was, I, I don't wanna you know sound conspiratorial, but to the point where when, when you're dealing with people whose background is ostensibly in science, you should be able to have some type of, you know, this is the type of evidence that I will accept to demonstrate, you know, success of our intervention or, you know, some period of time where we can do something else. No, instead, they're just going to change the definition of the word vaccine three times. Change the definition, <laughs> you know, ch change definitions, um, really just uh, equivocate with the public. There, there's a huge amount of deception going on. So that to me was a sign that we were dealing with really um, 
problematic people that they would not engage with our questions and discussions of how can we open back up again? What does success look like to the experts? And when they have no benchmark for that, you realize that they're doing it to consolidate power. They're doing mm. it for um, for a goal that is not what their their stated goal is. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the ledger, there were the White House staff. And I, I, I would have loved to have said at this point that it feels like every single White House staffer that was going to come out as a traitor has done so by now. But there's like a new one every week still. So uh, w- walk us through how you're thinking as you see this new news story every couple of weeks of this new White House staffer that secretly hated the president and hated everything they stood for and is now making a show of themselves in the media. What were those people like? when they were serving? Mm. How were they undermining the president in big ways Mm. and small ways on a daily basis? Oh, good question. I would say the biggest thing I noticed was simply lack of talent, that a lot of people who um, are now coming out as being subversive to the president, um, not appreciating his agenda or working against it in their time in the administration, lack of talent, um, lack of intellect. They're, they're people who do not understand anything about why he was elected. And a, a lot of times they're coached to speak in these high ma- high-minded abstractions about democracy and how President Trump was a threat to democracy and how President Trump was, you know, this, that, and the other epithet. And to me, it shows a profound lack of respect for the American voter, for the American electorate. You know, it, you're when you are subverting the president of the United States, you are usurping the will of the people. And so whether you are doing it because you are scared, which I, I understand, I have sympathy, I have sympathy in some respects for people who are so weak minded that they're afraid of the media response if they don't betray the president. Um, but a lot of times it's simply um, it's grandstanding for personal gain. And to me, if you are now joining the the whole host of institutional enemies that are hostile to President Trump, what you really are doing is is renouncing his voters and saying, I know that half the country elected this man, but I know that people who are more powerful, more powerful than they are don't like him. And that's the side I'm choosing. I think, too, that there's another class of people here who you know, got a job in the White House as like a sinecure and they didn't really have any like super strong opinions one way or another, just mm. kind of coasted through their role, um, treated it as a nine to five. And then now that there's an opportunity to say, I don't know, testify in front of the January 6th committee, <laughs> um, they are now, oh, I was against it the whole time. And <laughs> let me say all these things. And hopefully there will be some good gigs in it for me. Um, some of the people that I'm referencing, not by name, are the same age as as us at this table and and stand to benefit um in an extreme way from the kind of media apparatus that we've that we've built um how do you prevent that from from happening how do you prevent an administration from being filled with just yes men who are going to turn their back as soon as you're out of office well i think it's hard to know what's in anyone's heart um you can engage in vetting to an extent, but from my personal experience, the most important thing is having some accountability mechanism in the administration itself where people are monitoring what the staff are doing. Not in any you know way out of the ordinary, but someone who's simply monitoring job performance in a way. Yeah, and, just like do your job. Yeah, and, <laughs> and uh, for example, just 
that was not my responsibility. I was not charged with assessing who was doing their job properly, but you notice things, right? And it's sort of like, who is paying attention to this on behalf of the president and on behalf of the voters mm. to make sure that people who are drawing their public salary and who are in these privileged positions are doing what they're supposed to, are serving the agenda and are serving the public. And a lot of times these people reveal themselves because they're preoccupied with silliness. They're preoccupied with photo ops. They're preoccupied with... Um, collecting cufflinks and keychains from, you know, the different uh, Camp David, Air Force One, and so on. Challenge coins. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> These people reveal themselves as being somewhat unserious. And so while while that may not indicate that someone is betraying the president or working as a subversive, that's the type of account of, uh, you know, just monitoring for accountability. And uh, people are busy. There's a lot going on when you're in the White House. It's like no other place on earth. But there should be someone who sees it as their sees themselves in, as an extension of the president to make sure that our pe people are doing what they're supposed to. Well, I think there's another interesting thing at play here too that a lot of presidential personnel come from the nonprofit sphere. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is probably a similar work ethic uh, coming between you know especially from a lot of these like bipartisan or like we're 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 not a do tank we're a think tank or whatever i mean you said you said ai i did my best to not boo and hiss um, uh, but what's kind of the the how how do these two how does like the conservative nonprofit or bipartisan nonprofit infrastructure and the kind of laziness and, and lack of creativity mm. in the administration, how do those kind of interplay? I really think the issue there is lack of resolve and lack of mental fortitude. And because especially in an administration like President Trump's, as I say, you've got every powerful institution in the country lining up to subvert you vilify you to the public, work to make you fail. And if you're coming into that hoping that it will be sunshine and roses like the Obama administration, <laughs> you are deceiving yourself. You are not correct. And you're probably not mentally equipped for what it will take to soldier through some of this. And I'm not saying this to make ever, to make the staffers of the administration sound like heroes, but there was a big difference between People who just accepted that you're going to be working with a lot of hostile, you know, institutions and entities and people who were caving to that pressure. It really made them insecure and doubt themselves. And I think those are a lot of the people that you're seeing, you know, get peeled off by the J6 committee and, and other, you know, hostile actors. And when you come from a background in nonprofits or in just where you encounter so little resistance in your daily work life, you really are not. Unless you work at it deliberately, you will not be prepared with the, the mental fortitude and the resolve to work through and say, I know we're getting bad press on this. It's because they hate us. Mm -hmm. If you're getting good press on this from people who want you to lose elections and want you to fail and want your voters to not have a voice, you're probably doing something wrong. Mm. What have you been doing after the administration? So after the administration, I joined up with a startup called New Founding, and we are a venture organization that addresses a number of problems in our country. Number one is that we've got a hostile corporate class that often does not serve consumers well because they do not share many consumers' values and they are often forcing 
even hostile ideologies onto the consumer. The consumer feels trapped, has nowhere to go, um, wants better options and not to support companies that hate them. So one thing we do is we have an investment arm that um, is launching a fund soon to grow and sustain more values aligned businesses. Number two is we are fostering a commercial cultural community of folks who want to buy American. They want to buy from small businesses. They want to buy from, uh, they are the consumers who are looking for something different. And so we coalesce them into a community with some things rolling out soon, but especially we have a newsletter called the Align Newsletter um, that makes recommendations to readers. Um, and we'll start rolling out more partnerships with businesses um, who share our values and, and just uh, growing this pocket of the economy where people are demanding something different because you're seeing people pull away from woke companies, from Netflix, from Disney, and they're looking for something else from Nike and so on. Um, and then on the more overtly political uh, arena, I am now director of a super PAC called American Firebrand, and we put out messaging and guidance to hold the GOP accountable for we are expecting a red wave in November, but the key thing will be how is that red wave shaped? Um, will the GOP take their mandate seriously? Will they focus on an inspiring America first agenda or will they steward the dysfunctional status quo as the establishment tends to do? So we serve we call ourselves the voice of the people. We fight to win. That's in our minds distinct from what many conservative um consultancies, messaging apparatuses do. And so we are looking forward to holding the GOP accountable when they win in November. You also host a podcast, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> you should plug it, right? <laughs> well, I can't be shilling all the time. So I, yes, I'm the host of This Is Your Country with Paige Willie, <laughs> a podcast that studies the dysfunctional status quo and how we got here and who is responsible for it. And um, the fun part is that I try to bring the listener in on the revelation of where where do you find this information? How do you expose who is working against the interests of the American people? I will also give a plug for the Align newsletter. It's great. Thank um, you. I bought some things from it. You bought some things from it. I, I actually, bought too many things from it. Yeah, <laughs> spent a lot of money. I just bought them. Um, Y'all sent out the uh, like. Uh, uh, a newsletter about the Made in America American flags. I'm forgetting. Yes. I just bought one for my Brave house. American, maybe. Yes. <laughs> um. So just bought one for my house Good, and uh, I spent a lot of a lot of money because that's awesome. online newsletter. Well, but they're, it's great. they're a great business. They're great people who run it. So yeah. um, that's the type of person that we want to support. So you, you mentioned the dysfunction in this country a couple of times um, since the Biden administration has started. I mean, it, you know, prior to the Biden administration, you were in the perch where you were occupying one of the institutions of power that the right ostensibly controlled against the rest of America that it definitely did not. And then now it's it's all it's all blue America mm -hmm. uh, in charge right now across government, uh, culture, corporate America. What to you has been the worst of what this regime has had to offer mm. since uh, since it switched over last year? Wow, great question. <laughs> I find their activities at the border and in regard to immigration, most profoundly divorced from the interests of the American people. And their policy is open borders extremism. It is maximizing the number of people coming into this country, regardless of the cost or downside to the American people. Um, you're seeing now, it. this has continued unabated for almost, you know, almost two years now. Close to 3 million a year is Biden's import quota. Um, 
this is, I don't think there is a single comparable example of a leader doing this to their own country in all of human history. It is impossible to overstate how damaging and destructive this is. And obviously you've got, as I call him, sick puppy Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary at the helm of this. Um, He is a really disturbed person who his policy is maximize the number of people coming to this country. He He's smart. He knows that possession is nine tenths of the law and that once you've got a lot of people here, it's very hard to get the political will to engage in actual law enforcement and deportations. But and um, the problem here also is not just how sick Biden and his staffers policy is. But the fact that the GOP cannot even gather up the resolve to say, when we are elected to Congress, we are going to use leverage over the budget, over funding, to ensure that we can engage in serious law enforcement and deportation efforts. And until you do that, what you've done with our immigration system is establish um, a, a privileged situation for people who come here illegally and, and their first act on our soil is to break our laws. And you have made American citizens of all backgrounds, of all you know situations in life, second-class citizens in their own country by saying these people came here and broke the law and we will reorganize life in this country around their preferences. And you're responsible for paying for it. Yeah, I was watching this um, this interview yesterday between uh, was fake news journalist Ben Smith <laughs> and Tucker. Uh, and Tucker mm-hmm. Yes, very interesting. Uh, you know, my wife used to be a journalist, and we were watching we were watching it together last night. And she's like, "This is such a terrible interview. Like, <laughs> this guy sucks. <laughs> the, the, like, the interview is just terrible." But one of the interesting points that 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 Tucker makes is, you know, Ben Smith is talking about like. Well, you here's this eight second clip from Media Matters. You once used the words replacement theory. Yeah. Um, therefore, you're responsible for all the mass shootings ever. Uh, and what was interesting is Tucker was like, they they admit that this is what they're doing. Yeah. Like senior Democratic yeah. operatives talk about like, this is how we're going to win. Um, this is how we're going to win elections for the foreseeable future is by importing a ton of people to get them to to, to vote for us. Um, it is a very like it's mask off time. Like they're, they're you know they're in charge, and yeah. so they're being real honest about yeah. about what it is um, they're doing. Uh, and they and they really just want to lie. I think about the people who are who are against it. Well, as I say, it's the what they are doing is so ahistorical and so extreme that it really does require like a constant vociferous propaganda effort to to keep their arms around what they're doing and say, oh, if you criticize it, you're a racist. If you criticize it, you're a xenophobe. If you criticize it, you're a, a backward-minded, um, Trump-supporting rube, hick, whatever. And the fact is anyone who cares about the interests of this country at all should be profoundly disturbed by what's happening. Mm. Because in a lot of cases, um, this is something I do address in one of the episodes of my podcast, is that the the entities demanding all of this immigration are profiting off of it. They are, um, in some cases, big business lobbies where the um, they're in industries like agriculture, uh, meatpacking, and so on. And when um, children, people under the age of 18, come across the southern border illegally, the government's office of refugee resettlement 
which is housed by the Health Department of Health and Human Services, um, resettles them in towns where there are meatpacking plants and other agricultural entities that want a lot of cheap labor. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so they do the work for them. They do the work for them. And, <laughs> and so, you know, you, you've got, I don't, I don't know exactly what the breakdown is, but at some point you've got, you know, traffickers bringing these people here, bringing children here over the border. And then the U.S. government takes over and says, where, where do you need to go in this country? And they bring them, house them with dubious, quote unquote, sponsors who are their, quote unquote, relatives, but they're really treated like indentured servants. This is printed in newspapers and it's always you know covered and again this is where the propaganda effort comes in to disguise these these horrors is that it's covered as sort of a human interest story like look how hard it is for people who are new arrivals to this country like oh no and it's like your government is enabling this type of labor trafficking with public resources that to me is criminal well one of the things that's most fascinating about this is that, you know, if if you say that you're against illegal immigration or that we should deport illegals, um, no matter like I think Biden's lowest approval rating among the races is among Hispanics. Mm-hmm. They are the ones most pissed mm-hmm. about this. Why is that? Um, no, great observation. I think one of the key considerations here is that the Joe Biden administration has gone full-throated globalism. And the the key element of globalism that harms our country is not just foreign entanglements, not just letting letting corporate special interests run the game, but replacing the material well-being that the government is responsible for with policy for the country and its citizens with ideological abstractions and ideological experiments. And you will not find a less receptive population to that than people who have um, not a lot of disposable income, not a lot of time to be preoccupied with ideological dreams and considerations. And oftentimes that is recent immigrants, new arrivals, or people who just their values and their culture are very devoted to work, devoted to raising their families. And when you ask them to make sacrifices for ideological experiments, it is really, really repelling to them. Mm-hmm. And that's an, I, a second reason is um, if you're talking simply about recent Hispanic immigrants, they are, in, in many cases, if you just look at the demographics of it, they may have less education, they may be of a certain income level. And when you import huge waves of other workers who have their share their same, you know, uh, they're in the same strata of education or um, of work skill, they are being outcompeted by millions of other people for the same positions of the same skill level and education level every single year. If you believe in supply and demand, you must necessarily agree that that will drive down their wages and make them worse off. What are some of the other interest groups other than big business that are are pushing for the crisis that we're seeing now in in immigration? Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there's nonprofits, there's certain wealthy people. What are some of the other interests at play? Definitely. Um, the NGOs, especially those that are um, somewhat sponsored by George Soros or other folks, they have a they've developed a business model, which is um, lobby the government for lax immigration enforcement, lobby the government for high um, l- volumes of refugees that brought here deliberately. Um, basically, their policy is maximize immigration of any status and then extract public money to, you know, because then it's, oh, you've got a bunch of uh desperate and destitute people from a foreign country here? Don't you need someone to house them and feed them and take them to where they're going? That's our job. We need a big public contract to make it happen. So that's their 
business model. Their business model is maximizing the number of destitute people who are displaced from their home countries to come to the United States and um, to use taxpayer money to subsidize it. How much of what the Biden administration has done can be ascribed to just incompetence. Uh, we had on another person who served in the administration a while back, and and he said if he keeps in touch with some of the careers at the agency he worked at, and he said the Biden appointees sound and feel like sometimes that they thought that they'd be able to do a vastly better job than the Trump administration did just by virtue of being in the chairs, just by virtue of their mere presence mm-hmm. and not the mere presence of those rubes in the Trump administration. Do you think this is mostly just incompetence or is there a real zeal to to make the situation as bad as Mm. it is, especially when the administration knows they're paying a political price for it? It's both. I would say 75 percent malice. They are working deliberately to accomplish these policies that are making Americans worse off, replacing their interests with global considerations and ideological experiments. But secondly, a lot of these people do lack talent. They, um, th- Their primary concern, I actually said this on War Room last year, their primary concern is managing public relations, not in administering effective policy or hmm. doing anything competent to make the country better. They don't so, know anything. They all don't they, know, all yeah. they know has to, is to like post. And like... Right, exactly. So they, they are obsessed with managing public relations. And that's where you get a lot of these situations. You know, before um, inflation and, and gas prices even got this bad, this is a full year ago, um, the, the White House put out like a statement saying, um, you know, basically don't blame us for for gas prices. Um, you know, it, it's not our fault. It's and Putin's yeah, price you know, hike. whatever. And <laughs> and so that's a, a really odd approach, which is that you can just sort of instruct the public on what to believe, do nothing to serve them and then berate them and abuse them when they don't accept your narrative. You know, oh, you're spreading disinformation, just like the um, is Biden's climate advisor. uh Gina McCarthy wanted to work with the with Facebook and other social media companies to make it, you know, to ba- like have a policy of banning people who discuss the costs and downsides of a green energy transition, you know, berating the public into accepting things that make their lives worse. So it is incompetence. I think especially you've got they make a lot of hires based on considerations other than talent. And this is the chickens coming home to roost. Well, I think this is you know part of the disintegration of the Biden administration because, I mean, there are people leaving their their jobs for post-it, MSNBC or Mm -hmm. whatever, like it seems like every other day. Uh, And it seems like a lot of it is a lack of leadership. I mean, we can we can tell from watching the news that, you know, Joe Biden has the mental acuity of a sweet potato. (laughs) Like I was watching this video of him yesterday. He was putting on a Medal of Honor on somebody and he, he like put it on backwards like it was like hanging <laughs> down their back or whatever just look let's like, hope no one asked him to draw the clock yeah and and we we just i mean it's these kind of gaps are just constant mm. like it's so mm-hmm. clear that that he's gone but the interesting thing is if you actually look back at at joe biden through the years this has kind of been his shtick mm-hmm. he's he's the uniter mm-hmm. he's gonna he's gonna bring people together um but he's not a leader um, and it's not just because he like has dementia. It's because he's never been a leader. He Yes. He has always been a grandstander. He has always been an arrogant fool. He has no concept of how to negotiate for our country. And that's so that's one reason why I also bring up their approach of devotion to globalism is that they 
really believe that you can go to leaders of other countries, to Saudi Arabia, when we're in a, you know, a, a position of not a lot of leverage with them, um, to Putin, when we're in a position of not a lot of leverage with them, and use this globalist baby talk to try and get them on our side. And, you know, it, it's... Um, you know, do the right thing. Join us in in this fabulous transition. It's everything is a moral crusade. And other leaders of foreign countries, hostile entities, it instinctively makes them realize that they are dealing with a frivolous and, and silly person. Mm -hmm. And so that is the, the key distinction between a leader like President Trump and a person like Joe Biden is that President Trump was able to get other leaders to take him seriously. That's mm -hmm. how he kept Putin in line. That's how we, you know, when, when he saw the opportunity to take out Soleimani, he said, you know, no question, like, boom, done. And this is a person who could think clearly about America's interests, who does not waste time with baby talk and silliness. And when you do that, you are indicating to people across the world stage that you are open to be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And that's what they hear when Joe Biden says America is open for business. They hear, oh, we can extract and pillage and plunder and deal with these deeply unserious people in ways that work to our advantage. Mm -hmm. I mean, secondly, on the incompetence question, you've also got this faith that they have that the government is staffed by fabulous experts, as we discussed, who will handle the administration of, of serious policymaking. And so they have the luxury of focusing mostly on public relations. So that is like a, a key misunderstanding there. Like they don't understand that most of the, of the deep state bureaucrats, people who are careers at a lot of these agencies, um, they don't work very hard. They don't know almost anything. Their primary focus is who can they accuse of racism or sexism or ageism so that they can have a lawsuit and then get a $1 million payout and never work again. That like, I, I'm speaking from experience. I know these people. <laughs> and it happened. And um so they think that that type of person is going to get them out of some of these messes with like some type of brilliant policy maneuver. These people are like on their they're they're like driving Uber part time because they don't have a real job. Yeah, that that checks out. Um, and especially <laughs> during the Biden administration, is it's kind of shocking how how little many of these appointees. I mean, the city died after the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. They're not they're not even here. Yes. Most of them are still working remote. Mm -hmm. um, you know the the element of this that that I'm still trying to figure out I'd be curious as to your thoughts on it is what exactly is their end game in the near term right like what what is it that you're anticipating the Biden administration is going to do when they get shellacked at the end of the year here in the midterms um what what, what desperation are they mm -hmm. going to resort to in the final two years mm -hmm. the Biden administration to to ram through everything they can yeah no great point um two things one is I think you will see a desperate and frenzied attempt to get as far as they can with their goals before they're, you know, junked for a couple years in the midterms. So just as you say, it will be, you know, um, more outrageous things like the sort of DHS disinformation board and stuff like that, where they can try and just get a toehold in on disenfranchising and silencing, impoverishing their political enemies, which is, you know, anyone in the country who doesn't vote for them. Um so you will see things like that, I think, kind of getting hurriedly stood up and hoping that, like, it won't get too dismantled if they're, like, mm -hmm. you know, thrown from office. Um, and you're also just I think that is primarily what you'll see is victimization of the American public retribution for rejecting them and for it really is at, at bottom hatred for the popular will of the people. And mm. so any attempt they can make to usurp it, to prevent accountability in the future, that is the type of stuff you're going to see. What 
was your your read on the entire DHS disinformation board saga. I felt like every part of that story indicated a different element of American decline from like the particular kind of person that was chosen to lead it, which is emblematic of our failed ruling class to what it was trying to do to the fact that it was housed in DHS. Mm -hmm. As someone who's been on the inside of an administration and who has strong opinions about this, what what did you make Mm -hmm. of that whole saga? Well, I think one revealing element of it was I think it was Senator Hawley was um, using an opportunity to question sick puppy Mayorkas about this when he was testifying in front of uh, the Senate. He was saying, you know, we've tried to get some documents about the the hiring process. Um, we couldn't find those or, you know, we were being stonewalled. Where, where are those documents? Can you commit to preserving them? Can you commit to, you know, some transparency about how these decisions mm-hmm. were made since this is such a radical thing? Mayorkas is playing dumb. I was not consulted. These are privileged. You know, the, the hiring process is internal. That's privileged. Whatever. You know, like lots mm-hmm. of different arguments about why he couldn't be transparent with the public mm-hmm. about this. So I just my suspicion is um, whatever conversations were taking place where people were in a room saying we need a board on disinformation, which means, you know, monitoring information that 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 you know, is, is hostile to our goals and that mm-hmm. enables the political opposition to have any wherewithal whatsoever. You're dealing with some deeply sick stuff, right? Yeah. And so I, if there is a paper trail there, I mean, it's hard in some cases to get um, to get that FOIA'd or to get it uh, to get that information to see the light of day. But that would be really fascinating to see if they left an email trail. Which they you, probably did. Can you imagine the difference if it had been, you know, President Donald Trump and he, <laughs> you know, started a, a enemies of the people mm-hmm. disinformation board? Mm-hmm. The, 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 be cool. The <laughs> and the sheer terror. Exactly. It's insane. And I, again, this is what I'm talking about. It's the weaponization of institutions of government against the will of the people, because fundamentally what they're trying to do is criminalize dissent and neutralize their political opposition. And when you've got all these, quote unquote, democracy respecters saying that we need to deal with disinformation <laughs> because it's dangerous to democracy, what they're really saying is they want to be able to control political outcomes to a point where there is never a mystery about what what voters will do because they have defined the universe of, of outcomes that they will allow voters to compel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you, you've been you've said a couple times. I think this is a great framework is that they'll they'll always pick grand ideological abstractions over the material interests of the American people. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, some commentator that was on television the other day and this he was asked about gas prices and he was like, well, this is just the price of preserving the global world yeah, but- liberal order. I was like, Okay, man. <laughs> Good no. luck. Um, you know, you're going to get fired um, uh, from the administration at some point um, because of that, um, hopefully all at once. Um, uh, but but that that really does seem to be the approach that they've had. Um, what is the the right side of this? Um, you know, the 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 Democratic Party by no means is a monopoly on extremely stupid ideas. What do you think the the wrong path for Republicans to go down if they were to retake the majority here in in two years and four years would be? And and what what's your picture of what mm. a better path would look like? One of the worst things we deal with is rhino type senators and congressmen who believe that by aiding the opposition, they will receive better treatment in the press mm-hmm. and that will make them um, that will aid their political fortunes. And sadly, um, you've got a lot of that. I mean, you've got a lot of senators lining up to um, work with Biden and the Democrats to repeal President Trump's tariffs on China. I don't know why you would do that. It's New York Times explicitly said um, this is not going to have any effect on inflation. So, you know, stop making that argument. It's a lie. Um 
You've got Senator Thune, Senator Cornyn, Senator Tillis, all ostensibly red state senators who are Republicans lining up to work with big business on they want um, they want like a, a DACA law basically in Congress to make sure that people who came here illegally um, never leave the country. Um, they are working with the Biden administration to try and raise caps on, quote unquote, you know, legal immigration guest worker visas and mm-hmm. so on, which is just you know, a wage subsidy, a centrally planned um, wage subsidy from the government. They're working in a lot of ways against the American people and calling it bipartisanship as if that makes it virtuous. Um, they want to be rewarded in the press by um, congratulated for their lovely decorum. And the problem is, as I said earlier, is that if you're being congratulated on your decorum by people who hate you, you're probably working against the opposite, the against the interests of your voters. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a really big danger: is that they aspire for the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Number two is that um, the the risk is that establishment Republicans will take this as a license to let special interests and other consultants sort of control the agenda. Um, you know, not and ultimately what that usually the shape that usually takes is not doing anything at all. Grandstanding about things, you know, say, oh, this is why they they on the campaign trail, a lot of establishment type Republicans will never commit to anything. They will not commit to like a sort of outcome that they say is favorable. Mm-hmm. They will always say we need to hold Biden accountable for his border crisis. We need to fight inflation. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Like, what policy are you proposing? What, mm-hmm. And people will say, well, they, they, they won't have complete power to make policy because they're, they don't have the White House. And it's like, are you going to use leverage of withholding funding? Are you going to use investigations? What are you going to do to ensure that there is some measure of, of the will of the people taking this back? Mm-hmm. Or are you just going to get rolled? Yeah. No, I think that that is the contrast that that is is so clear is that one side wants to uh basically do whatever the democratic party wants to do but slightly less in hopes that the media will praise them and mm-hmm. and hopefully the the other angle is to to take a more imaginative approach and actually have a positive agenda that's right uh page where can people keep up with everything that you're doing everything that new founding is doing uh what do you have to plug uh <laughs> how do people find your podcast tell yeah, us it's time to plug and chill <laughs> um Listeners should follow my podcast, This Is Your Country, on Apple or Spotify. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Midwesterner. It's spelled E-U-R at the end, Midwesterner. Mm-hmm. Um, you sign- are from the Midwest? I'm from the Midwest. <laughs> I'm from Toledo, Ohio. Um, yeah. Sign up for the Align newsletter at joinalign.us. Um, and follow us on American Firebrand. Um, we're on socials, and our website is AmericanFirebrand.com. That's our super pack. You can donate, um, become part of the movement, because um, we're the voice of the people, and we fight to win. Thank you for coming on, Paige. Thank you. It was delightful. Told you guys that that would be a lot of fun. Um, thank you to Paige for coming on. Uh, be sure to check out everything that New Founding is cooking. Be sure to check out her podcast, the Align newsletter, uh, everything that they're doing over there. They're they're fantastic people. Um, some of our earliest friends and supporters uh, are over at New Founding. Um, Matt Peterson, if you are listening to this, you are a boomer. Never forget. Um, uh, but as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org, uh, rate and review this podcast five stars only, please. It really does help us. I think we're over 125 reviews. Let's get that up past 150 by the next few weeks. Um, and if you write a particularly interesting review, we'll be sure to to read it out on the show. And if it's in the form of a question, we'll, we'll gladly answer it. Um, thank you guys, as always, for listening, and we will see you next week. 
Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.